This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome. You're listening to 3RRR's Radio Therapy. Well, it's all over the media. Bullying in our hospitals, allegations of poor treatment, intimidation and downright nasty behaviour. SK and I are going to have a little discussion about that at the top of the show. And then we're going to move on. We've got a packed show. This week is the Australian Society for Medical Research Week. And uh, we've got three very, very special guests in the studio. We've got John and Jane. Jane herself has pancreatic cancer. And we're going to have an in-detailed discussion with her about her journey, her life's journey to this point. And we're going to follow that up in the back half of the show with Catherine, who's an oncology nurse working in the area of cancer. So if you really want an insight into what cancer means and all things to do with the Anti-Cancer Council, stay around. This could be this could be our best show ever. So along with Kent, who's going to join us in the initial discussion, we'll be back in a sec. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. SK. Our best show ever. You set a low bar till now. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly plenty to talk about this morning. There is plenty to talk about. We're not going to talk about Richmond, are we, guys? Please. Well, it's one of Richmond's best games ever, perhaps. Yeah, look, I, I get what they're doing now. I hate to talk footy at the top of the show, but I get what they're doing. They, they've got a physique. They, they're, they're endurance runners. The whole team. They won. That's all that's important. Okay, all right. Moving straight on. Mm. Um, now, I contacted you during the week on Sunday, actually, and, and interrupted your evening when you were drinking wine and asked you to watch Four Corners on the Monday night uh, because there was um, uh, quite an expose on, on bullying and intimidation of registrars in the Victorian public hospital system. Mm. What was your take? Well, I watched it on iView this morning. I didn't watch it on the time uh, you, you suggested. I'd already opened the second bottle, so it wasn't a good time for me, tall man. Yeah. But uh, certainly an eye-opener and certainly the gen- something that the general public don't have much idea about. But when it hits the front pages, it doesn't look good for the profession. Mm. And I suppose uh, both you and I, by virtue of our positions, have uh, heard stories over the years of uh, doctors and medical students who've been bullied. It's not a pretty picture. Uh, i probably have memories myself as a medical student of being given you know a particularly hard time by doctors on teaching rounds supposedly mm-hmm. uh, in major public hospitals which were really used as uh, belittling sessions to uh, illustrate the knowledge of the supervisor and the lack of knowledge of the student okay. so it's on a spectrum yes. that i guess on uh, monday night we heard about some of the more severe examples mm. i mean it, it uh, again in the media there, there seems to be a dichotomy between uh, medicine and surgery in relation to this with a lot of the initial um, uh, problems coming from the surgical area the surgical training programs Um, and that's I think historical um, and I don't quite know why that is maybe it's the psychology of somebody who decides to become a surgeon versus a physician 
I suspect myself that it's because of the great competitiveness that surrounds surgical training positions. I mean, there's a lot of competition in all of the medical specialties, certainly, but surgery in particular has been very hard to get into for many, many years. There's always many more applicants than there are jobs available. So once you get a job, I'd imagine there's a great amount of pressure to keep that job because it's seen as a prized possession. And uh, it's, it's a question of what you're prepared to put up with to keep your job perhaps mm. and maybe the surgeons who supervise these uh, vulnerable trainees are aware of that you know in many ways the references that you get from your bosses during your rotations set the future for your career uh, if you drop out there's always somebody willing to take your place so maybe it's because uh, power corrupts and absolute power in that sense corrupts absolutely there's more opportunity for surgeons than for mm. general physicians or psychiatry trainees for mm. example. i thought we'd bring kent in on this to represent um the general public because i was again talking to various people about this and i and i suddenly realized i i, I don't know that i've got the proper perspective of what this is thought of uh, in the general public what the expectations are and who better than a studier of the international world than Kent to actually tell us what, what you actually... What, what was your take on it? Um, there are a few things going on for me. Um, one, on a real basic level, is uh, a reminder that workplace bullying is just a feature of so many workplaces now and yep. wouldn't necessarily think about hospitals as being a site for workplace bullying. Um, but that show brought to the fore that no workplace is necessarily on that level any different than any other. And, but, but what's your expectations of doctors themselves? Do you see them as, as people that are uh, benevolent and, and kind to each other and supportive of each other in quite difficult, tense environments? Yeah, absolutely. I think that one thing that I'd share with the common man is that it would be a, a perception of doctors as almost untouchable in many ways. Um, and Just that, ask the lawyers that. Yeah. <laughs> um, untouchable <laughs> in the sense of the esteem we convey um, on, on the profession. And um, SK was talking about... Um, uh, this elitism, and I think it's not only a sense of elitism and incompetence and capacity in that field, it's elitism in behaviour as well. Mm. It's like if you want to even reduce it to community role models and things mm. like that, and therefore we would project onto them an assumption that they treat each other really well. Yeah, okay. So, SK, when we talk about bullying, I think it's worth just actually saying what that means. Uh, and, you know, there, there, and this is where bullying becomes hard to discern. When you are operating in a hospital and you are seeing patients, uh, you have a standard of care. You know, the patient has to be seen, the patient has to be examined, conclusions have to be drawn, that has to be recorded in the history, tests have to be ordered and those tests have to be checked. That's the work of a public hospital resident registrar Medical it's the stuff. requirement of the job. That's yes. the requirement, the basic requirement of the job. There are levels of anxiety around doing that and performing those tasks, and then the person that's done it will be accountable to a more senior clinician. Let's just say we're talking about an intern who's doing the grunt work and a registrar who's supervising all of that work and working at a sort of a higher level in assessing patients and their acuity. So at some stage they come together, uh, and they come together with their senior consultant, uh, who then go over each case individually and discuss the issues. And if things have not been done, if things have not been checked, 
if conclusions have been drawn that are not correct, there becomes a, uh, a tension between the senior consultant, the registrar and the resident. And that is the ground upon which you, know, you hold somebody accountable for their job to the level of their ability. So you can't ask an intern to make a diagnosis of hereditary spastic paraplegia because they don't have the skills yet to do that. They will have the skills, but not now. So and a difficult diagnosis, that you can't expect somebody with that level of experience to get to that diagnosis. That's what the consultant is there for. So this interaction that then occurs can be one of uh, intimidation or humiliation, um, but it's based on an expectation of performance. Do you I, think that's bullying? I think there's a difference between bringing somebody's failures to perform expected tasks adequately to light on the one hand and bullying on the other. I mean, we all have to deal with suboptimal management of employees at some stage, regardless of the profession that you're involved in. But it's how you do that and how you bring deficits in performance to somebody's attention that, uh, to my eyes, delineates performance management and bullying to publicly humiliate a junior colleague in front of their peers and registrars, berating them for poor performance. To me, that's bullying. If you've got a performance problem, you should take somebody aside. You should bring it to their attention. There's, there's a way of doing these and things. And offer remediation. Yeah. That is, you say, well, look, you know, let's, let's work on this. You know, you can, you, I know you can do better, and you, you know, We'll work on it together, and this is what I expect you to do. So set the expectations, and if you're having trouble with that, then let's work through why you're having trouble yeah, with that. So differentiating between the content of what's said and the manner of okay. delivery. Uh, I mean, there's, there's plenty of people who uh, need to improve their performance, but you don't get that out of people by yelling at them, certainly not in a public forum in okay. front of their colleagues. So let's flip back now and look at our training programs. So the training programs are historical. They've been, you know, we do ward rounds. These are these sort of methodology for operating in a hospital system are hundreds, hundred, over 100 years old. Um, we also teach, and we have a... I have to say my whole paradigm of teaching medical students was turned on its head um, in about 2004 when we, uh, we had the most recent university produce uh, undergraduate medical students who then came on wards, and these are postgraduate students. These are students that have done something else. They've done a, a Bachelor of Science degree, they've done law, they've done arts, they've, they've come from all different... But they have a degree already, and now they're entering four years of medical training. And they're a di- different kettle of fish, A, because they're more mature, they've, they've been in the systems longer, and they are more focused on their education. They have a different expectation. So the normal paradigm on a ward round is that you'll go and see a patient, you'll introduce yourself to the patient, you'll say, would you mind if I brought some young doctors with me to show them what problems you've got and as a teaching uh, session? And the patient has the right to say, look, I, I'm not up to it, I don't feel, or no, I'd be too embarrassed, or I don't want to, I just don't want to. Uh, but having gained their permission, you would then take the students in and you'd say, OK, look, we're going to examine this person's chest. And now, who would like to examine the chest? And one of the candidates would stump up in front of eight other of their colleagues to do an examination. Now, that puts them under pressure. Mm -hmm. And it's the fear of failure. 
It's the fear fear of being less than what they aspire to be and being seen to be less than what they aspire to be. But nonetheless, it's still teaching. And until recently, I'd never had a student look me in that context, using that methodology, and say, I'd prefer not to participate in this examination. And I was... I had nowhere to go. (laughs) I actually was speechless. I'd never had a medical student challenge that method of teaching in front of a patient, and I didn't know what to do. I really did not know what to do. How did you respond in actual fact then? Look, I responded poorly. I responded poorly. I said, because it was done in front of a patient without... And I didn't, you know... I'd accepted that this was how we were going to teach. That was my first incorrect assumption. I accepted that this was how we're going to run these clinical ward rounds. And it was done in front of the patient who then looked at the candidate thinking, why doesn't, why don't they want to examine me? And I, I said, look, on that basis, you'll have to leave the ward round. Um, and that's okay, but you, I, I prefer that you didn't stay on the ward round. That was a mistake. That was an error that I made that um, I should have handled it differently, and I wish I had have handled it differently. But after that, and after challenging the basic precept of how I taught, I suddenly realised, and this is ten years ago, well, seven years ago, that it was wrong. This was too much. So why wasn't I actually inviting them to be part of a ward round and giving them the option before we started the ward round, a, do you want to do, have a go at this yourselves? Do you want me to do it? Do you want me to do it with you? And so now I make very clear when I'm teaching, we're going to do a ward round. These are the things we're going to look at. I can do the examination in front of you to show you how I do it. Um, or I can get you to take the clinical narrative if you'd like to have a conversation with the patient and figure out w- what we should examine, uh, and I'll support you during that, or you, I'll do it myself. But I pre-warn them, and I don't place anybody in a position where that they would fear failing or looking silly to their colleagues because, you know, that was how I was taught. Uh, you know, it was brutal. I remember, you know, going on the neurology teaching round with my heart in my throat every Friday afternoon, knowing that I was going to be put up on a, on, in front of everybody and to fail was abysmal. Maybe part of the problem, Tall Man, is, as you've said, uh, medicine's been teaching this way for hundreds of years and what might have been arguably appropriate 200 years ago is certainly not appropriate today in terms of workplace behaviour. Can I ask how you followed through with that student who you asked to leave the ward round? Was there any follow-up and further contact between the two of you? Yeah, look, it was was taken out of my hands uh, by the dean and there was... um, I actually didn't receive any sort of um, feedback from the medical school uh, and it took me some time to, for myself to formulate, no, look, actually, I have a case to answer here. And it, it you know, initially I was so horrified by the fact that, uh, that it occurred in front of a patient. Again, my responsibility, my responsibility is to control the clinical interface. Um, and it took me a while to actually sift down through and actually understand what, what happened there. And that, you know... The counter-argument that you often hear, well, you know, you, you live in a pressure environment. You guys are in a pressurised clinical environment. You've got to learn, you've got to be tough. You know, you've got to be tough. You've got to learn to be tough. 
Well, you can teach being tough and being able to keep your mental capacity under pressure. You don't need to do it in that way where you constantly are putting somebody out where they're right on the edge of their abilities and they're anxious and, and fearing failure. I suppose you had the opportunity to model how it should have been done when put in that situation. But uh, you, you don't have to talk about this tall man, but you say it was taken out of your hands by the dean. Did things escalate? No, no, they, no. no there, there, were, there were some... No, they didn't escalate. I think that we, we all decided that we needed to take a cold shower and have a look at ourselves. Hmm. Um, and... Uh, I've got to say it did take me some months to actually filter through and think how am I going to approach this in the future because I don't want that happening in front of a patient ever again and understanding and then taking my own personal experience. (laughs) But I would like to see medical education do that formally. Can I ask a common man question? Mm. (laughs) Um, It relates to the training and the story you just told was obviously full of a lot of self-awareness and self-consciousness but I remember another Four Corners show... um, and I think it was focusing on Duntroon and the rite of passage yes. phrase kept yeah. returning. Yeah. Is that prevalent within the hospitals as well, that, that young doctors are expected to go through, you know, traumatic training um, as, as a rite of passage to I, get to...? Yeah, look, no. I, on the whole, I, I, I do remember consultants saying to me, you know, um, when I was at a major teaching hospital training in Melbourne and I was working... 80-hour uh, weeks and would be in the ED department three nights a week and they'd say, well, you know, you you got to go home. We, we, we slept in the hospital. We, we never went home. Those are my memories too, Toolman. It was sort of like that Monty Python for Yorkshireman sketch. <laughs> That's right. You, Gravel. You were looking. Yeah. <laughs> looking. Luxury. Luxury. That's right. <laughs> to bring it back to surgical training, uh, a lot of hospitals are putting processes in place for welfare of all staff, like mm. there's staff welfare services which are usually contracted out to private psychology services so they're at arm's length from the hospital and and its own processes they also have uh, hmo mentors employed i I remember being an hmo mentor a few years ago and uh, i I only ever had two junior doctors seek me out or be referred to me for help during that Mm. time and they were Mm. both surgical registrars Mm. both buckling under the pressures of the job Mm. so i think there is something in particular about the the pressure cooker environment of surgery and again the the requirement that you be seen to handle pressure because Mm. that's a core component of the job yeah look and if you look at the workforce of surgery it's dominated by men 90 percent of surgeons plus are men and 10 percent are women and it has been said to me that if you're a female and you are going to succeed in surgery, you almost have to be worse than the men in your behaviours. That is, if you're going to get through that training program, you've got to be have the uh, behaviours of, of the male-dominant leadership plus some. Mm-hmm. And it will often, and I have definitely heard female registrars say, I'd rather deal with the male consultant surgeons and not the female because they are harder on us than than the men are and that that's purely anecdotal but i've heard that repetitively so, so socialized into being abusers in the in their yes, own right that's right I so think same that came as out me in the four corners yeah. story as yeah. well didn't it yeah and the same is my approach to clinical teaching i taught as i had been taught and i therefore thought that that was acceptable but when i really was challenged on it and sat down and thought it through I realised that the whole thing was flawed. You must teach how you want behaviours to be, not just from a uh, an established paradigm.
But so it's a complex issue, and we're all flawed. Uh, and if we look to our own um, uh, practices, I think we're all flawed. But this is an issue. This is a serious issue that needs to be seriously addressed. Can I close with a lighter moment to yes. land just about how a surgeon who a surgeon who felt particularly entitled got his comeuppance? Uh, I'd love to hear that. <laughs> very high-powered surgeon driving between two major hospitals between sessions on the freeway was speeding, came to the attention of a police car who pulled up alongside, you know, flashed him and told him to pull over through the window. The surgeon's response to that was to pick up his stethoscope and dangle the stethoscope out the window at the police officers. <laughs> the police officer, to his endless credit, responded by dangling his handcuffs at the surgeon. <laughs> I, I think I know who that was. <laughs> it's a small world in medicine. Three Triple R. You're listening to Three Triple R. This is Radiotherapy, and in the studio today, Jane and John have come in. Jane, welcome. Thank you. Nice now you've uh, bravely volunteered to come in and have a chat to us over the next fifteen or so minutes about uh, uh, your experience with cancer. But before we get into that, tell us a bit about you. Where, what, what, what's, what, where have you come from? What have you done? Uh, where have I come from? What I've done? I was um, came. I uh, was born in New Zealand and uh, brought we, up. In, now we don't hold that against I you. I was just okay? going to say, come over here, <laughs> take your jobs. Um, then I went to. My parents went to England when I was two. Mm. I grew up there till I was in my thirties, and then I decided to move out to Melbourne. Right. Um, my um, sort of career has been telecommunications. IT based and uh, for a long time I worked in the health service in in the UK as a telecommunications manager for a network of hospitals so uh, a bit of a um, interesting listening to your conversation so, before. Yeah, so you, you would have um, you would have seen a lot of change in that industry over that working career. Yes and no. Oh, really? It's, it's certain, and certainly with the the hierarchy and the way things work, probably not so much. When you were discussing okay. before the culture, yeah, yes. the culture, but obviously in technology, absolutely, and yeah. in working in the IT industry. I, mean, I wasn't working in the health service here. I'm working for a technology company, but huge amounts. I mean, huge, just right. so fast. Right. Yeah. And so, and do you have family? Um, I have a husband, John, who's here with me. I don't have any children, but I have right. a stepdaughter. Right. I'm about, and I'm about to be a step-grandma soon. Right. And what about yeah. brothers and sisters? I have um, one brother who lives in Melbourne and another one who uh, is deceased. He unfortunately died of melanoma when he was 39. Right. Okay. So things have... You've been, you've been tracking along well and then things, something went wrong. Yeah, it was um, probably... when I. It, Hindsight's a great thing, but in October 2012, I started to get some uh, belly problems. Is probably a wide description mm. of it, and mm. I did go to my GP, and we thought it might be something else, and eliminated a few things, and then it carried on. Um, I had a, started to get an aversion to certain foods, and uh, then in January, very beginning of January, I went back to see my GP and said I was feeling like really not very good at all on a scale of 1 to 10 and we discussed the, it always comes up, the depression thing. I'm thinking I'm not depressed it's not. Just know. tell us about that that's really important. Yeah, it's, it was a constant theme of um, you know, working too hard and being depressed and um, I would always argue, there was a constant pressure to take anti- antidepressants and there still is with, yes. Even with my disease now, yes. there still is very much so. so. So what the doctor's thinking there is they're assessing the symptoms that you're 
describing and they're, they're basically, the, the methodology is saying, well, I can't see anything focal that points me to a problem. Mm. So if somebody has a chronic illness like that or it's developing into a chronic illness, it's almost, and SK can comment on this, depression can become part of the chronic illness because you're unwell mm. and reactively it's appropriate that you become depressed. Yeah. Whether that needs to be medicated or not is another issue. Mm. But the normal part of a reaction to sort of an illness that you're not getting over is it takes you down psychologically. I'd, I'd argue, tall man, there's a difference between feeling as reasonably as bad as your situation might require, like when you're in physical discomfort, you're allowed to feel certain negative emotions. There's a difference between that and being clinically depressed. And uh, mm. I'd actually take the other side of the coin that antidepressants are often over-prescribed just for people who are you know, responding appropriately to their circumstances and who might do much better mm. with, uh, with counselling and talking about how bad they're feeling and ways of dealing with that differently. It's much easier for doctors to prescribe a pill than to actually talk to patients, which is unfortunate. Absolutely, I agree, totally. That's yeah. how I feel about it, very nicely put. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this was going on, you weren't getting anywhere, You were you in pain? No, I wasn't in any pain. I um, was, uh, it, it, as it progressed, I went on holiday to New Zealand and I started to get some um, physical, more physical symptoms. They did discover I had vitamin D deficiency, but that was at my request. I asked mm. to get it tested. Mm. It was very low. And so we, I sort of went on that and things improved. Then I went on holiday to New Zealand. Then I started to get um, severe diarrhoea. And that progressed um, over the next three months with lots of tests. Mm. Um, and the, the, first thought, the first thought was food allergies, not allergies, food intolerances. So I went on various you know, exclusion diets and I had colonoscopy, endoscopy and you know, cheery and, and, uh, um, gastroenterologists coming to me and said, oh, that's all fine, nothing nasty there. Mm. And uh, I got huge weight loss, 13 kilos in two months. And I still, to this day, I'm stunned that that wasn't taken more seriously. Mm. Not somebody that somebody that used to look at food and put on weight. It was <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, even I wasn't happy with it. And um, so it was back and forward. I had antibiotics. They thought maybe I had Giardia, but it wasn't showing up. Um, I had severe pain in my left side after the endoscopy, and I ended up in um, an ED. And I had a CT scan, and I had an ultrasound, and they still didn't spot it. And so I then went another uh, till September, uh, where they I went back to the gastroenterologist originally went to again, and they did a they'd done some fecal fat tests and decided that I wasn't absorbing fat and I had pancreatic insufficiency, but we'll just do a CT can, CT scan to check, and then that's when I got called back and told I had adenocarcinoma. Okay, so you were you were obviously in and out of doctors' offices over how long was that? Um, Nine months, would it be? Nine months, yeah. Uh, trying to identify... Six months full on. Yeah, yeah. trying to... And, and the CT scan identified something... Yes. ...that was not quite right. Yes. So they, yeah, so they then biopsied that? Or they, they? they did. I had um, uh, uh, um, uh, an endoscopy biopsy. Yes. And... They didn't biopsy the pancreas because it was such a vague, misty yes. area. They di- <coughs> excuse me. They biopsied the lymph node. Yeah. So what they've what they've said what I'm interpreting here, but what that sounds like is that the pancreas consistency throughout it didn't quite look right. No. Probably not enough to be a lump per se. No. It just was a change in the. It's like feeling foam and leather. Uh, would be the difference between the two, and the technology there is uh, that's right on the borderline yes. of the technology to be able to detect that change. Exactly. 
Exactly, oh. that was the the difficulty. And the gastroenterologist, the different one who actually did the is it EU procedure, they yeah. did, yeah. yeah. Um, said to me after I'd woken up, he said, your pancreas looks fine. Yes. You yes, know, he, yeah. and he said he'd run the film a couple of times. He said, I cannot see anything wrong with your pancreas. Yeah. So the the anatomical structure was the surrounding substance in it, mm. okay. And it's locally advanced. So. And then they came back, so that process came back and presented you with a, a, a formal diagnosis? Yes. Uh, it wasn't until a couple of weeks later where I actually, the gastroenterologist said to me, he said, well, we've got two options here, because he wouldn't give a conclusion. He said, uh, I can refer you to a surgeon or I can uh, I can refer you to another. Ga- well, I can't remember if it's a no, surgeon. No, he's going to do another biopsy or yeah, refer you to, to an oncologist. oncologist. Oh. And I thought, well, he's going to refer me to an oncologist. I better, you know, he obviously thinks it is cancer because yes. nobody had actually really said it. Yes. So I got referred to an oncologist who had more results by the time I went there. And I got to see him very, very quickly thanks to his wonderful um, receptionist. Yes. And we started treatment from right. very quickly from and, there. And what's, what's been involved in that treatment? Now, first of all, the, the, the diagnosis ended up as being pancreatic carcinoma. Mm-hmm. And What's your understanding now of, of where you are in that disease process? Um, stable is my understanding. I have what they call locally advanced, so it's spread to, it's inoperable and it's um, around the arteries and so it can't be removed. And I have um, a, a little in my lymph nodes. But I started off on a particular um, course of chemotherapy in um, September... 2013. 2013, and I stayed on that for a number of months, and it's kept it stable. Then I had a break um, for very, very luckily for about seven months with no chemo, and mm. I was being monitored six weekly blood tests and three monthly scans, and mm. then it started to, as expected, uh, arc up again, and I'm mm. now on a different chemo, one that's recently been approved for pancreatic cancer, um, which started in October. With this diagnostic process that you went through, it sounds like there was a period of many months mm. where you had investigations which were coming back normal. Yep. Do you think that was why the doctors were pushing the psychiatric line? You know, it was like a challenge to the doctors because they can't figure out what's wrong with you. The, there can't be anything wrong because I would have diagnosed it. Therefore, this woman must have psychological problems. Did that come into it, do you think? I think in the early days, I think um, certainly for the first three months or so, um, but not in the latter when it was obvious very obvious i was um you know like flailing and not uh, you know and looking starting to look pretty mm. gaunt and, mm. and and not good but it is interesting you mentioned that again because it came up when the gastroenterologist you know told me that i had the cancer she sort of had a serious talk look talk look on my face i think it was the next appointment saying right now i really want you to take antidepressants you need them Mm. Now, now, John, obviously mm. you've watched Jane go through this yep. and you've been uh, standing there. How, how's this impacted on you? In what in, way? In every way. Um, well, obviously it's something difficult to get to grips with. Yes. Uh, we've had all the trauma of some family and friends yeah. about what's happening. Uh, watching, standing by and watching what's happening, can't do anything about it. So a sense of helplessness there? Uh, to a degree, yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, medically, I can't do anything. All I can do is provide support and yes. look after her. Um, and how difficult was it uh, getting to the family and, and telling them what was Yeah, that, that was difficult because it was in the early days. Mm. Uh, it's, we find it easier, or I don't know, I find it easier to talk about now because mm. mm. of her practice. Mm. But when it first happened, you just think, well... Mm. Never had to deal with anything like this before. Yeah, I mean, this may sound like a really strange question, especially coming from a doctor. But um, uh, 
what have you learned through this process? What, 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 yes, what, what have, what's been, what's really impacted on you primarily? Um, I suspect a lot of cancer patients would say this sort of stuff, but uh, very much more spiritual um, thinking type person. I think I have become. Uh, it, it's not a change. I think I've got rid of a lot of layers of uh, scar tissue from being in the work environment and uh, learned to... I think what I was looking for was a little bit of peace with myself and not just because of the cancer, but because I didn't have it beforehand. I was yeah. just extremely stressed doing a job I was good at but didn't like. Um, so, so all the clutter and crap of life just yeah. fell off? It, not quite. It still clings with the, with <laughs> oh, the clarity. Oh, there's some, there's some areas <laughs> where you've got to get a fork in there. But. Yeah. <laughs> oh, look, you know, I, have, I certainly have my moments, but I... And I, I really hope this doesn't offend some cancer patients. I really do. But I, you have this weird, almost thankfulness for having it because it's it's just stopped you on the horrible, horrible whirlwind of being, you know, um, miserable and waiting for something better to happen and just thinking, you know, is this it? Not that I'm, I'm not saying I was, you know, deeply, deeply miserable. It, it's just it, I wasn't comfortable with what I was doing, and mm. I should have a long time of go gone back to what I like doing. Mm. Yeah, look, it's part of life's journey, isn't mm. it? That we all um, would do well at some point to take some time out and pause and consider mm. where we are and Absolutely. what the important things in our life actually is yes. to make it, you know, to enjoy our lives and be more happy, but also maybe to be more productive or, you know, there's all sorts of benefits from that. And it's, it, it is a, it is salutary that, you know, cancer, in fact, is the mm. thing that does it for a lot of people. Absolutely. And yeah. I, I think um, seeing, taking more time for people and seeing people more clearly instead of just being in this sort of veiled world. Yeah. Mm. You mentioned a spiritual journey, Jane. Has that taken any particular direction? I'm just trying to quieten my mind, do a bit of meditation, and I find groups, support groups, are very, very helpful for that. A particular, a particular support group called the Tara Institute in um, East Brighton. They run. Uh, it's a Buddhist. Uh, temple, but it's run by a psychologist, um, a chap called Bob Sharples, and that group I found immensely supportive in calming me and meeting other people with similar problems. And I think one of the things I love about the group is it's not cancer specific; it's anybody who has a trauma, you know, a serious illness. So, is this best described as mindfulness? Yes, the practice of mindfulness. Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. And um, did you find it easy to sort of to flick into it to actually no. get a grip of? How to do that? No, no. It's a it's an ongoing project, and I think you'll find that you know people who have been meditating for thirty years are still going. You know, <laughs> it's um, and I think what the, one of the things with groups and a lot of reading I've done is that uh, at the beginning I used to get so frustrated with myself, I, and I turned up and said, "Well, this is probably doing me more harm than good by doing this." But over time, and you keep at it, you realise that even if you can do a minute. It is it is helpful and it's. Uh, uh, and do you look to the future? Um, do you look to the future in a different way? I look to the future. Gosh, I haven't been asked that, and I I really haven't thought about it. Do I? Uh, no, not very far. Mm-hmm. Not very far. I um, I do make plans, but I just try and go day by day. Um, I I hope that there's 
something else that's going to come up that might give me a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. And I am very grateful for all the people who are working on this sort of thing. Um, mm. And this, you know, the people who take amazing care of you, like my oncologist and the oncology nurses that treat me, who seem to have a disposition that um, I don't know where it comes from. Mm. Mm. <laughs> they keep that going. Mm. But uh, I hope, uh, you know, I, I keep in mind that, you know, no tumours are the same, even with the same cancer, and everybody has a different journey to take. Yeah. And you, you cannot begin to know what that is. You can only try and. Uh, directed in the way that you'd like to like it to go along. Okay. All right, fantastic story. Uh, incredibly brave of you to come in here uh, <laughs> and share job. that with us. We're going to take a short break and we're going to come back and speak to Catherine, who's an oncology nurse. Three triple. You're listening to 3RRR's Radiotherapy and as part of the Australian Society of Medical Research Week we're participating with Einstein Agogo and we've got very special guests in the studio and you've just heard from Jane and John and now we have Catherine who's an oncology nurse who's going to tell us really about herself and then a bit about what she's doing and also something about forgotten cancer. Um, So Catherine, welcome. Thank you. Now... How did you become a nurse? Oh, big question. Um, (laughs) It was one of those things. I never had grand dreams of being a nurse. It was one of those things that happened when I was in Year 12 and having to make a decision about what I was going to do. I had a friend who was doing nursing at university. She was a year ahead of me, and she would tell me stories, and I would sit there thinking, gosh, they sound really interesting. I Mm. I wonder maybe if I could do that. So it wasn't Mm. something I'd thought about much more than that. Really? No no direct family members uh, involved in medicine per se? No, nothing. It was was purely, and I don't even know if my friend knows this, but it was purely through the discussions that I had with her. I had other visions of of continuing. I was learning Japanese, and I'd learnt Japanese for pretty much my whole school life, and I thought I'd go to Japan and teach English, and that just didn't turn out that way and so I thought oh, I'll, I'll give nursing a go and, and luckily for me it, it worked out well and like most people who are doing something that they love I can't really imagine doing doing anything else. So you started into it and, and the passion evolved? It, it did, I mean I've always been a people person, I love to talk and as cliche as it sounds I like to feel like I'm making some sort of a difference in yes. whatever it is that I'm doing and I think when I got into my grad year um, I was placed on the oncology ward and that was where I sort of never really looked back and where I sort of felt like I was getting to selfishly feel like I was making a difference yeah. um, while also learning a stack. And, and Jane mentioned earlier about the types of nurses that are on those wards and I think I looked at these um, these nurses that I was working with and thought, yeah, I think this is what I want yeah. to be doing. What did your mum and dad make of what you were doing? It's interesting. I, I think they were happy as long as I was happy, but I remember in the, the first few years of my nursing especially with an oncology ward, when I'd come home and naturally want to vent and and talk about what I'd witnessed Mm, or what mm. I'd been part of, which is quite eye-opening and you're part of some very personal situations and some... As, it, as people would assume, some sad situations, but you're also part of some pretty happy happy situations. There's a lot of black humour that flies around in the oncology yes, ward. Yes, there is. Um, There's no doubt about that. Um, I think um, my dad probably struggled with it a little bit more, and mm. I think both of them didn't like seeing me upset. Mm. Um, but I think it was about me sort of educating them that it wasn't that I was upset or that I didn't want to do it. It was just part of my learning how to deal with what you go through when you're training and, and being part of these... Um, very eye-opening situations, but it's 
it's also a very big privilege to be part of that mm. as well. And I think when they, they started to understand that it wasn't me struggling, it was just mm. me learning how to cope with that in mm. a professional way, um, they've, I think they're very proud of what I do. Yeah, look, I, I, I share uh, that, that sort of difficulty. And in, in the area where I specialise in, you know, which is motor neuron disease, I'm always... Or every single time, absolutely um, astounded that I'm actually seeing people come to their best in these circumstances. You, you know, they are difficult, tough decisions, but the courage of family and 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 people affected by these disorders, you know, it's it, it's wonderful to see that in people, and it emerges, and it emerges at a, a very quickly, doesn't it? That's right, and especially in the work that I'm doing now. So I. I spent um, the first four to five years of my nursing, I was working in inpatient wards, mm. um, chemotherapy, palliative care, um, outpatient wards doing the same. Um, and it was through a, a colleague that I was working with that I came to work at the Cancer Council. Mm. Um, Cancer Council has an information and support service, um, 13 11 20, um, available 9 to 5, Monday to Friday for anyone who needs What was it, it again? 13 11 20. Good, okay. Available 9 to 5, Monday to Friday for anyone who needs us. You, but you, you should work on radio. Totally. Um, <laughs> I had to get that in there. In, but in fact, you don't know it, but you may be working on radio. That's right. Um, but no, that, that information and support line is, is staffed by oncology nurses and it was a role that I came into, um, which is a completely different way of working. And I think the thing that attracted me to that, um, that side of the role was... Um, you weren't time limited. You got to have some pretty in-depth, difficult discussions with um, people affected by cancer, not just just patients but also carers and, and health professionals and um, being able to step back a little bit from... Um, that proximity to patients that you develop, you know, um, professional relationships with, but you do develop that connection. It was very important to be able to step back to, to mm. do that. I mean, Catherine, a lot of the work that you do with patients obviously is on the, the psychological spectrum and, and has a counselling bent to it. How, how did your training prepare you for that role? And uh, in, in your current role, do you get ongoing peer support about how to do the psychological stuff? Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I think when I was working in the wards, that was obviously, it was a lot of colleague debriefing. There wasn't necessarily formal processes for that. But um, in, my, in my role now at Cancer Council, we um, we are dealing with a lot of complex situations and you were mentioning before about the fact that people aren't generally just dealing with one thing. There are so many so many aspects to what they're going through. It's never just about their diagnosis. And I think as humans, you, you take a lot of that on and you want to be able to help those things and you do use your knowledge um, of what they're going through and the medical system and um, their treatments. You, you co- coach them through that. Um, you're there to listen, you're there to support and you're there to be someone who's impartial to the situation, I suppose. They don't have to worry about protecting your feelings and, and how you're um, feeling listening to what they're saying. But um, in terms of that debriefing, we are human and I think the second that you start to not feel something is when you should probably find a different role to go into but having said that and um, going back to what I was saying when I was first training developing that professional um, that professional aspect of your career and learning not to take it home with you necessarily um, we do have professional debriefing once a month um, with a psychologist who does come and chat to us about some of those complex calls um, but there is also a very informal debriefing with the team that happens organically after every phone call. I'm really interested in that so I mean that is giving you the support of a psychologist do you think that in your performance of your professional duties, formal a formal course in psychology would add anything further to your practice? 
I think when I look at my own nursing um, degree that I did and when I look at where I've ended up in my nursing career, um, I think having a stronger um, influence in our training around psychology and dealing with those kinds of things would have been very helpful. I think that the people that I work with, we're all, we have, an, I guess, a natural um, okay. affinity for that kind of thing. Yeah. We're comfortable in those areas, yeah. but having said that, you need to know your yeah. boundaries as well. So th this is what I refer to as the art of medical practice, where the, uh, the, the, the type of practice you're doing fits like a glove with your personality so that you actually have those abilities and that's probably why you're attracted to do it because you're able to sit yourself in that zone and and listen you, i think you, that was the most important thing you just said was you're there to listen uh, it's often in that no questions no agenda just listening that yeah. you can actually be of greatest benefit that's but so you, it seems to me like you are that perfect fit for the profession you're doing um again I, I suspect that you know i don't know the answer whether formal psychology and maybe sk's got a point of view would actually embellish somebody's natural ability in this area look i think having an understanding of psychological principles you know in particular things like coping mechanisms would be useful but you know a, an undergraduate psychology degree doesn't actually set you up to deal with patients it's more theoretical mm -hmm. so whether it's formal psychology or training in counseling which is i guess the grassroots interface with the type of work that you do informed by psychological principles would be of value but a psychology degree probably not that's right and in in the training that i received when i transitioned onto the phones obviously um, it's a very different way that you work from working from the bedside at a particular hospital where you've got your own protocols and you know the systems you know the doctors um, when you're working at somewhere like cancer council that is um, you're in a different position you're impartial to what you're talking about it's it's really information provision and support um there was a lot of training that we went through that had some of that theoretical underpinning but that was all on the job learning from the nurses who'd been working there previously that took me through some of those concepts you learn that overarching theory but then obviously you learn how to to weave that into your calls in a much more informal informal way so, so just take me through a normal day for you mm -hmm. how, how, what are the interactions? Are they phone-based? Are they face-to-face? -face? How, how, what's a normal working day? Sure. So the nurses that are on the phones predominantly are there taking incoming calls. Um, and as I said, the, the line is there. Predominantly we hear from patients who've received a diagnosis, but there are also um, calls that come in from carers that are wanting more information. Um, we have calls from the general public about cancer prevention or research and, and the like. Uh, and we also do get calls from health professionals that are looking for information and resources for their patients. Now that's very different to your nursing on the ward where you're face to face with individual patients and their immediate carers and relatives. Did you find being uh, that the telephone did anything to the way you operated, that, that separation of you physically from the patient? It was funny, we were reflecting on this the other day actually with a couple of the nurses that there's pros and cons to it definitely. I think being on the phone, there is the anonymity side of it for the patient. They can talk more freely. Um, they don't have to worry about where they are or what you might be thinking. Um, but as a nurse in that environment as well, you miss out on all the visual cues that you might get from someone having a conversation. Um, and as you said about um, finding a, an area where your personality fits with that, I'm a very tactile person. I like to be around people. Um, but I think what I got from that role that I wasn't necessarily getting was the time and the space to have those those more emotionally complex discussions that you just don't have time to have in a clinical environment. You're too busy caring for the, you know, 
temperature, blood pressure. Exactly. You've got mm. pumps beeping, you've been called mm. away to other things, your buzzers are going off and you can, you, I think the thing that I love most about oncology is that you see these patients on a somewhat regular basis. Mm. They're coming back, you develop relationships with these people and you can tell very quickly if someone's not having a great day but to not have the time and the space to have a conversation about why that is is, is very challenging. So all of these interactions are actually on the phone or uh, is there a partition where it's face to face? And can... So we have both. The, the majority are through phone calls but we also have uh, an ask a nurse email service yes. so there are nurses that are responding to questions via email and we also do have the ability to have um, people call in to see us but the majority of those are through our WIG service. And once you um, just establish an initial relationship with a patient is that is that relationship continued or will they get the next person uh that is, is there continuity of the conversation? Uh, it depends entirely on the conversation itself. If we've had a particularly in-depth discussion, and we were talking before about the number of things that people are dealing with, if we've had a particularly lengthy call with someone who's got a lot a lot going on, um, we have the ability to offer what we call a follow-up call, so we can call okay. back and check in on them, and that will generally be by the same nurse. Mm. But otherwise, if you've had a, a fairly standard discussion with someone and, and you feel that they might might call back um, we we try not to um, necessarily case manage as we would say but if if someone has had a very um, lengthy call and you don't want to have to have them retelling that story again mm. we we have the option to have that same nurse jane could i bring you you in here for a second i mean are the questions that you ask your nurse that you don't ask your doctor mm-hmm. is the relationship different in that sense um yeah it, it's true actually you do because um I have a huge confidence in the oncology nurses and um, so yes I will ask them some things about medications or personal you know experiences and things that are actually going on on with me because they're likely to have seen it in somebody else and um, I find them very reassuring so yes. But the doctors aren't equally as likely to have seen those things is the There's qualitative the... nature of the conversation yeah, different? I'm really interested in your answer <laughs> okay, here and, and you right. can say whatever you like. I know okay I yeah. just hope he's not listening. Um, um, okay. <laughs> no no no, no. for, for, for us it's a learning. Huge respect for my oncologist, but he is time poor. He has a huge list of people, and I respect that those there are some people particularly who need more of his time at maybe the beginning or what, whatever they're going through. So um, he said a very funny. I have uh, I have two or three friends who he treats, and um, one person with not who doesn't have pancreatic cancer, but she complained about some problem with her foot and he turned around and he said, I'm not a foot doctor. And, you know, it's fair enough. He doesn't have time to deal with those peripheral things and certainly not psychological things. And I can get it elsewhere and I I do... um, appreciate the oncology nurses for, for that and I am also very aware of their time too mm. you know so I don't overburden them with things like that so mm. sort of quick question like mm. no, I was given he gave me a prescription for something the other day and I said uh, to one of the nurses oh is this going to keep me awake and she said oh just take it in the morning you know beautifully mm. dealt with Catherine mm. mm. okay. so. now the forgotten cancers project this is something this is the the sting in the conversation (laughs) um yes definitely i think um jane is actually a participant in our forgotten cancers project and what we're looking at is a a large sort of scale research project to find participants to look at some of the less common cancers so we've got um i guess what we call the big five being um, breast bowel prostate melanoma and lung Um, there's a lot of research around those and we know that um 
five-year survival rates for those cancers are getting better and better. Yes. The treatments are getting better and better, but there are such cancers like pancreatic, um, you know, brain cancer, leukaemias and, and so on that by the nature of those diseases are more difficult to research and more yeah. difficult to find out about why people get them um, and also how to treat them more effectively. Mm. Um, so this project is looking at exactly that, trying to really focus in on those cancers that don't get a lot of airtime, so to speak, mm. um, and to really see if we can make a difference in, in looking at those treatments. And are you expecting anything from the community regarding these, the participation in these? Definitely. So as I said, Jane is a participant in the project and it's, it's really quite simple in the sense that if you do have one of those cancers and, and you can find out more about the project online uh, it's www.forgottencancers.com.au so just um, google forgotten cancers and it'll come up exactly right and there's more information on the website there about the cancers that we're looking at but the the participation is merely questionnaire based and all you have to provide is a saliva sample so anyone um, that is listening that is is going through a similar experience to jane or knows of someone who would like to participate or would like to contribute to that that research um, we would love to hear from you and, and you just have to find out about that online okay look we better go because the scientists get very antsy when we take their time so but to thank catherine uh, Jane and John for coming in and sharing all your stories. I think it's been uh, really beneficial and uh, Jane, for you, you the courage to come in here and talk fantastic. Thank really appreciate much. it. I've learnt something, SK's learnt something and I'm sure sharing the sort of the knowledge that you have is, is incredibly worthwhile. And even to Kent on panel who's seamlessly given us a radio show with no dead air <laughs> and contributed to the conversation. So we'll uh, hand over to the scientists and we'll be back next Sunday. Whenever I come home after a hard day's work, I love to listen to the sounds of Triple R 102.7. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.